This is a podcast from the children's radio station Fun Kids. Listen on DAB Digital Radio across the UK or online at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and we've got huge news, big space news right now. 24 planets have been discovered to have conditions more suitable for life than our very own planet Earth. How can that be the case? We're going to find out. Professor Dirk Schulz-McCoch is an astrobiologist from Washington State University, and, and he did the study. Uh, Dirk, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, now listen, you discovered these 24 planets out of over 4,500 that we know of. What were you looking for? What are conditions that are suitable for life at all? Well, first of all, we found only candidates that may be suitable. So we don't really know for sure whether any of those are in fact more habitable. But what we looked for is planets that might have more biomass and biodiversity than our own planet. And so we looked both in a solar system setting. That means what kind of host star these planets would have and we found out that, for example, K stars, K dwarf stars, are um, uh, likely more suitable than uh, uh, stars like our sun, which are uh, G stars. And we looked back in the natural history of our planet and found out that certain environmental conditions are also more favorable for life. What are those environmental conditions that help an ecosystem? Well, you know, you can even look today on uh, at our planet. Where is the most biomass and where is the most biodiversity? We won't find it in the desert, neither in Antarctica nor uh, in a warm desert like the Atacama Desert, but we find it usually in jungle areas. So if it's warm and wet, uh, that is really uh, preferential for life, to have lots of life and lots of different life. Uh, then also uh, coastal areas are very productive. So if you have a really long coastline, this is also helpful for life. And uh, there's other things too. So if the planet is slightly older than Earth, or at least as old as Earth, we also think then there's more biomass and biodiversity because that has increased during the natural history of our planet. Now, here on Earth, we're equipped with loads of the stuff that we need to live. Uh, there's oxygen in the air. We've got water. Um, is there a way of finding out whether these planets, whether that would have the right things in the air to uh, sustain life as we know it? Um, well, in principle, um, we can find out, but it still will be a time, uh, still take some time because... It is simply um, that our screening abilities, uh, looking at exoplanets, are not as sophisticated. We're just starting to uh, can identify certain compounds in the atmosphere, mostly uh, a planet that has carbon dioxide. Oxygen is already a little bit more challenging. And to get a really uh, better picture, we need higher resolution. But uh, we, will, we hope that we have that soon with... Uh, uh, some new missions and uh, better telescopes in, in space. Well, let's talk more about that. When you were looking at these planets, Dirk, how were you looking at them? How are you able to find out 
the compounds that are in the atmosphere of a planet that's light years and light years away? Well, uh, the thing is, uh, we don't know those yet. So we cannot say what uh, the compounds are in the atmosphere. What we have from those planets is usually uh, what kind of stars they orbit. We have the information, how far are those away from the stars. So that means, are those in the habitable zone, meaning is, uh, is, are those the right conditions uh, that uh, water would be in the liquid form on its surface? And uh, we also have some kind of idea about the temperature of that planet. We have an uh, idea about the age of the, of the system, the planet and the star. So uh, we uh, can accumulate this kind of uh, information and say, okay, uh, if those conditions are set, we have uh, planets that are favorable, that could be very habitable or super habitable to life. But that doesn't mean that they are. If you look at uh, our moon, for example, our moon is a dead rock in space, but it is actually in the same zone as Earth is, in the habitable zone, and it is uh, uh, from the temperature regime and from it has the same age but Earth and our moon couldn't be different. So there is no guarantee, even if all the parameters are right, that they, those planets are habitable or that there's life on those. You talk about the moon there, Dirk. Um, why are the moon and the Earth so different? As you say, we are, I mean, in space terms, pretty close together. Um, we're the same sort of distance away from the sun. We've got water, we've got heat, we've got light. Why is it so different on the moon? Uh, well, there's several reasons to it. One of the big reasons is really that the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. So it basically shows always the same side to the, uh, to the Earth. And the, uh, then the moon uh, degassed and lost its atmosphere early on. It could be that since Earth is bigger, that it actually took much of the moon's early atmosphere as well. So uh, without an atmosphere, um, the moon is really hot on the side that uh, shows to the sun. Um, and on the other side, it's very, very cold. So, and we have the uh, fortunate uh, circumstance that we have a relatively thick atmosphere. This really thick atmosphere is really the lifeline for our planet. Without that, we wouldn't have any life on our planet either. It also protects, protects us from radiation. And the other thing um, that is uh, a big factor is that Earth is liquid inside. It has this kind of outer core that is churning and building up a large magnetic field. And we have the whole planet basically um, recirculating in what is called plate tectonics. We have new crust created and somewhere else subducted. So that really recycles everything. Now, we found these planets that you think they, uh, they might have an ecosystem which could sustain a form of life. What happens next, Dirk? How do we find out at all whether there might be life on these planets that are so far away? Well, um, the thing what we have to look as that uh, we, we actually get a closer look at those planets. And this will happen with uh, new missions like Starshade, uh, 
um, they put space telescopes, uh, telescopes into space and uh, go with a close observation. Our point is to select candidates out that might be more likely to uh, contain life. See, we have now uh, close to five, we know uh, right now close to 5,000 exoplanets. So there's no way that we can all of them uh, really analyze and look close to it. So we have to uh, prioritize or select certain targets. And the ones that we selected um, or that we suggested, that would be uh, good targets for further investigations. But we do need those telescopes uh, uh, to really investigate further. Is the investigation zooming in on the telescopes to see if there's anyone wandering around, or is it a bit smarter than that? Well, the first the telescopes first have to get into space. Uh, there, there's several missions, uh, Plato, uh, Starshade, I find it very exciting because with Starshade, uh, you actually have one planet has its own pixel size. So actually you can view the planet even if it's only with one pixel. Uh, because all, um, uh, all telescopes so far can only see the star and the planet together. Of course, with that, it's very difficult to extract information and to say to, okay, what is a star, what is a planet, and uh, how might that combine? If you start with having uh, one pixel only the planet, then this gives you information, uh, much better information. And of course, the next step would be to get several pixels to see, for example, okay, has the planet... Uh, uh, maybe uh, an ocean uh, on the surface. Does the planet have maybe uh, uh, polar caps like our planet? So, so we are only at the beginning, really. It's baby steps. Now, you've said many times, Dirk, that your mission is to search for life in the universe. Do you think that you will ever complete that mission? <laughs> um, well... You know, uh, I, I think for uh, any life outside of the solar system, this will still take decades till we are for sh uh, sure, for certain there. Unless, you know, we are really fortunate and we uh, are getting contact with intelligent life uh, through radio uh, signals or something like that. Uh, but otherwise, just from uh, exoplanets and looking through the telescopes, I think that will take still decades. So my answer there would be no. However, what I hope is that we, uh, at the same time, we're working very hard to find life on Mars. And I'm working uh, with my colleagues, too, at life detection instrumentation, for example. We're looking for life at Enceladus, at uh, Europa, at Titan, and so those targets within our solar system are much closer. Sure, at those places, you know, we won't find animal or plant life or something of that complexity what uh, we have on our planet. But, you know, we as astrobiologists would be already very excited to just find microbial life, you know, bacteria that are on an alien planet. And this is something feasible uh, and maybe even likely to find within our own solar system. Now, lastly, Dirk, um, we see on telly and in movies and in sci-fi books and stuff, and I know that you've written your own sci-fi books, uh, aliens, they tend to look, you know, like a, like 
uh, a bit weird, a bit like us, but a bit kind of green and slimy most of the time. <laughs> in your mind, knowing what you know of uh, the, so the, the universe and your search for life, what do you think life on other planets will take the form of? Uh, well, you know, we distinguish between phenotype and genotype. So geno is uh, uh, the genetics, what is based on. Phenotype is how the organisms is adapted to its environment. So it really depends a lot of the environment. Just think about Earth, what kind of different life forms we have. Compare yourself to a tree or to a slime mold or so. Uh, all look very, very different, yet the genetic, there are genetic similarities. So, um, you know, if we know the environment on that planet, we can deduce or think about it, what the form could be, how that organism would look like. Um, it depends to uh, what kind of complexity you get at. If you look at uh, really animal or plant-like life or fungal, uh, large fungi or something like that, um, you would probably see uh, start to see some similarities, especially as it becomes, you know, more complex or more intelligent. You know, crows, elephants, apes, dolphins, uh, octopi are all relatively intelligent. So you would. I think about some similarities that there may be a, a central functioning system like a brain and a head. Although you have to be kind of careful again too, because uh, a lot of neural activity and neurons in octopi, for example, are within the arms. They are not all in the head. So uh, there are a lot of different possibilities. And um, for us uh, to distinguish and say, okay, that will look like this or that, it's really um, very speculative. I can't really pin it down on that. It would be more, uh, like I said, appropriate to say, what kind of functions these organisms could do? How would they work? And uh, what, they, what they can do in the environment? Amazing. Professor Dirk Schultz-Machoch, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was an interview from the Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast. There's a new episode every week. Find it wherever you're listening to this or ask your smart speaker to play the Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast. So that was a podcast from the children's radio station Fun Kids. Listen on DAB Digital Radio across the UK or online at funkidslive.com.